0: On this episode of Flock of Seagulls, we discuss the perfect weapon, a.k.a. Hitman Origins.
1: right, everyone, (laughs) Uh, welcome to episode
2: 8 of Flock of Seagulls? 9 I think.
1: Well, hello everyone. Welcome to episode nine of uh, Flock of Scales. We're going to be talking about uh, Perfect Weapon. Uh, with me, as always, is Riley. I'm Michael. And we also have Dan. Hello there. And
2: Tony. Hello there. I guess I'm not allowed to say hello anymore. What the, what the fuck, Mike? And Riley. Moment has passed.
3: Uh, you have to tabo. say hello there. Dabo. <laughs> everyone has to say hello there. So we just
2: finished watching, we finished recording the commentary track, the exclusive Fox and Skulls commentary track, only available to wherever you're listening. $500. Uh, And it's not $500. Well, we'll figure out a price. We're in the
1: process of having
0: Mexico erect a paywall for that content.
2: (laughs) Like, However
0: you do want to pay us for it, it will have to be in a back alley. Trump already tried to do that.
1: Speaking of back alley, it was funny how... 65% of uh, the movie tonight took
2: place. 65% of people are illegals, right, Tony? Took place where?
1: (laughs) (laughs) In uh, uh, extravagantly purple
0: uh, lit uh, back alleys.
3: Yeah, it was always nighttime. Yeah. The whole movie. It's always
0: nighttime in Alabama where this movie, The Perfect Weapon, (laughs) was filmed
2: so perfect weapon takes place in 2029 yeah in america america
1: america and then at
2: the very end of the movie after the credits it's revealed that they got a tax credit for filming at hall in alabama yeah
3: which is crazy considering some of the architecture yeah i didn't know that alabama had architecture like that
1: (laughs) yeah well the the the,
2: well wait a second Are we sure those all weren't just very fancy mud huts, which I assume is what we all as Canadians are assuming Alabamians, Albanians, Alabams, Albanians, right? I mean, a
1: a mud hut is like an um, American igloo, right?
3: But warmer. Yeah.
0: I think literally the only time I've ever seen Alabama in a movie was in Manhunter, that first adaptation of Red Dragon. And it had like a really eighties ass house in it. So that is
2: my perception of Alabamian, how a bimp! Can we just How go back and all s- recognize that an American igloo is the fanciest of all sex acts you can do with three other people in the room.
3: Speaking of sex acts, though, <laughs> this movie—oh, this I'm loving it! A lot of sex acts. It
1: it it was like a epic like cock tease.
3: Yeah, it was like at any point it could have broken. Yeah, into like. But how do I pay for this? Yeah.
1: I feel like in order to make this movie more cost effective, that they had like, you know, a B crew uh, on set to like shoot the end of the amorous scenes. And they're just like, we got these low rent uh, softcore porn stars here. So we'll film the sci fi Seagal film. And then, you know, when these two need to finish each other off, then we'll have a straight to. I guess DVD or whatever, like sh- shitty softcore porn movie. So maybe that's why they're
2: kind of like, you know, it's like that, uh, you, uh, bowl U V A bowl, like a tax scheme kind of thing.
0: Bowl. Yeah.
2: Where he filmed the blood rain film and the, the, ver- the comedy version of blood rain where, where oh, there's yeah, no yeah, beast yeah. woman as blood rain at the same time to save money. It's pretty smart. I'm, In actual shock here because I didn't know that other movie was a thing that existed. Yeah, Yeah.
3: either.
2: Yeah, so he he filmed Blood Rain and the parody to Blood Rain at the same time. I mean, that's just. Oh, uh, I'm remembering Blubberella, I believe is the name of it.
3: No way. That's really. I'm actually so like it's not relevant, but my dad hates movies and TV. Like he hates movies, he hates TV. He used to work in TV, so I guess <laughs> he has like he's, he was too close to it. So his favorite movie of all time is "Killer Clowns from Outer Space." but every Good movie it's a great movie. it's actually hilarious. dang. but it's like the only movie he actually even likes, and so this is way off topic. but like Blubberella is I get him like a movie every Christmas, and Blubberella was I think the last movie I got him. <laughs> Because he just loves movies like that. Are
0: are your Christmas presents intended to mock his distaste for movies?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely.
0: So there there was a contest uh, that this
1: local bakery had, and it was that you had to come up with carnival-themed macaron ideas. So mine, was <laughs> one of them was killer clowns from outer space. So it would basically be like a like macaron, and in, in the center, it would be... Cotton candy as, like, crazy clown hair. Right. Yeah, they didn't take it.
2: (laughs) I hate you guys the more you reveal about yourselves on this podcast. But anyways, I love you for being here tonight to talk about the perfect weapon. And for once, we're not talking about Steven Seagal. Yeah, like, he is not even first built
0: in this movie. Like, even though this is kind of a Steven Seagal movie, our main character is Condor, a bald... Like, Do you mean Axon?
3: Yeah.
2: Accent, yeah, Axon Accent, <laughs> Conboard. He's like a man blessed with all the awesome names in the world. His <laughs> his uh his code name is Condor, his real na- his given name is Axon. Uh, <laughs> his middle name, Pete. I mean,
1: <laughs> as as Tony pointed out before, uh he's kind of like a bald uh panned, uh Italian porn star <laughs> version of John Hamm.
3: Oh yeah, the Italian <laughs> thing is on point. Yeah, he's got like the and a muscular swagger, yeah, he's got, yeah, the, he's got
1: like that porn arms, yeah, or it's like a tube, you know, it's like a tube of undefined muscle, yeah, yeah,
2: the traps. But those muscles will define themselves in the anger that they wrought against the city, which is future America 2029, where everything is pseudo Japanese,
0: yeah. and the state has 100 foot tall video screens on the side of every skyscraper broadcasting testimonials for people who love the state as well as the president. They buy Steven Seagull in the thickest, possibly fakest goatee I've ever
2: seen. Can we just say that Alabama really thrived under Google fiber? <laughs> like they <laughs> 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 Their tech business really exploded because this place is filled with like low res gifts of drones coming down from the sky and just every Every scene is trying to be Blade Runner, but they can't afford to be Blade Runner. So sort of like Blade Runner from a 1999 uh, video game of like a city that was trying to mock Blade or uh, be like Blade Runner. It reminds me of the Blade Runner PC game from the 90s.
0: Nah, 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 nah. Yeah, uh, but the main character, Condor, who looks like a knockoff version of Agent 47 from the Hitman series of video games down to wielding like twin silenced Colt 1911-style pistols. He is, like, an assassin on the payroll of the state, like, the government. And we quickly see him establish his chops by shooting two guys akimbo through kind of, like, shitty blind thing you'd buy at Ikea. Like, the thing you fancy people go behind to change in a movie. Like, oh, let me just slip into something more comfortable, honey.
2: (laughs) But not only that, like, uh, there's sort of the japanese panel walls like yeah, paper walls but like panels of those that you can buy individually that kind of shitty people put up in their homes when they're like "Ooh, i've got a 1950s way of changing or when, also- or when
1: you've got three people uh living in the like uh eating area of like a flop house and you're just like this is your room and then they just kind of they fence you in with uh, those kind of, like, uh, J- Japanese paper wall things?
0: Yeah. It is... It's like Montreal it Is the pretension of privacy without any actual privacy.
1: So, I would say one thing that uh, is worth noting is that, like, this is the first Segal film that we've seen where, uh, you know, it's kind of like, like a high concept science fiction type thing. And that the production values and the effects and whatever, whatever. Like, I mean... They really stepped up to sell that concept, you know, like I think that that for all of the, you know, narrative missteps and, you know, corniness that like they did a good job of making it look like a real movie, which is it's a tall order to fill because I mean, especially in this day and age, it's like budgets associated with, you know, science fiction blockbusters are like insane. And I mean, there's no way this movie had more than like, what, 20 million dollars Thirty
0: million. That, yeah. Oh, I looked at IMDb. It says something like eight million. Yeah.
1: So I mean, like, like I would say they did an impressive amount with it. I mean, especially now that we also know that like it wasn't shot in Romania or Turkey or something. It was <laughs> shot in a place where you have to pay people.
0: Yeah. As <laughs> as far as direct to DVD movies goes,
2: although I've seen a lot.
1: And then when we say pay, the, it's like like pay them in money as opposed to goats. Like, what sure. are
2: Alabama slavery laws these days?
1: You know what? I think Alabama might be one of those rem- last few states that doesn't have a minimum wage. <laughs> There's a few states that don't have a minimum wage yet. And I feel like Alabama might be one of them. I know that South Carolina doesn't. Really? Anyways,
2: let's talk about... um let's The actual through. story of this, this thing. Actual-
0: the sequence of events that unfold in this movie.
2: So what opens up fairly quickly is that there is a... There's a pirate radio station, not radio, video station. um, Pirate Twitch stream. Pirate Twitch stream by this guy who is also bought and sold by government forces and is trying to work with more affluent one percenters to sort of bring about his own version of the... It's a very 1984 sort of thing. Yeah,
0: this fellow who I've been told was on HBO's Treme, uh, you see he has shady backroom dealings with who the credits list has, like, Russian guy and, like, Texas guy.
2: Yeah, and it's, I mean, every moment in this film that you dwell on a single scene, you start realizing how implausible this thing is. And so, like, in this scene, it's the back of a nightclub that has, uh, like, drop ceilings from an office building with, again, some more paneling from a nice IKEA catalog. And then a man in Alabama but has obviously been, like, the old man in China for the longest time ever, playing a little... hero. Yes. And then a woman, a white woman, uh... Um... Done. Done up in the kabuki stuff. Yeah, so she looks like one of the... Or like, memories
1: of a
0: geisha. Or... Yeah, she looks yeah. like one of the robo-geishas in the beginning of the American Ghost in a Shell.
2: Or Titus in the second season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought you were going to say Titus. Christopher Titus of the TV show Titus. And I, I mean, sure. we'll get to that eventually, I'm sure. I
1: thought it was going to be Titus, the uh, Shakespeare adaptation starring Anthony Hopkins and yeah. Alan Cumming.
2: Guys, yeah, we're 15 minutes in. Okay.
3: Wasn't Titus the director as well? Yes, Titus Carr.
1: Titus <laughs> they like really front load the movie, and uh, they're immediately showing us, oh, it's this dystopian future and there's a a big brother style character and uh, there's another politician who's cutting into his pirate radio thing and that uh our i guess male lead condor this uh uh He's state, government assassin state sponsored super assassin is tasked with uh killing this
0: guy he is the perfect weapon
1: and so um when condor goes to uh kill the pirate radio dude uh, he is uh, surprised to find his ex girlfriend, who has a flashback uh, about murdering. An in- interesting point about the ex girlfriend that uh, in the previous scene, she's dressed up uh, in the memories of a geisha kind of Asian getup. And then now she's dressed up as a, a Chola. As identified in the movie.
0: Yeah. The shady pirate, anti government dude.
1: Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the, uh, a condor has sort of like a a crisis of faith. Uh, should I kill her? Should I not kill her? Uh, and he decides not to, and then, uh, kills the, uh, pirate radio dude.
2: And brings up one of the more interesting aspects of this film, uh, which is a perfect weapon is, uh, condor. Uh, Ostensibly. I believe we're supposed to believe that he is the perfect weapon.
0: We're told there's like a title drop in the movie where someone says, Oh,
3: even though like right near the beginning, he almost dies. Well, this is
2: the thing, is like he's the perfect weapon, and we're supposed to be following his sort of the way he's changing events. But throughout this film, he sort of carried like there's a there's a grand plan that the dictator Steven Skull has in place for him. And that plan is basically I will take you from set piece A to set piece B to set piece three to set B oh, did you see my brother? He was back there at craft services. Oh no, <laughs> not for you. Um for a film based around this man. Like, it's it's almost like a... It seems almost like a deconstruction of the idea of The Perfect Weapon because, my God, does this guy get beat up
0: and his ass handed to him.
2: It's a it's a comedy of follies. Is that what...
0: Comedy I mean. of errors? Yeah. So, the onset of The Perfect Weapon and Who's a
1: Perfect Weapon, like, do you guys remember Seagal's monologue where he drops the title and he explains, like, the... Difference between a perfect weapon and... You guys remember this? No. Can you please refresh? So it's a scene where he's talking to Condor's supervisor and he's doing the Aikido stuff. Mm -hmm. So actually... Oh, that's great. That's right. The perfect weapon isn't the best thing. And that they're talking about this whole... uh, They're reconditioning people to not have any emotions and blah, blah, blah. And he's saying that that will create the perfect weapon, but that a perfect weapon is basically like a tool and that uh, like it's not something that you can rely on because you're trying to race around blah, blah blah and that Sagal drops like a line even cornier and even funnier than a perfect weapon he's saying that what he sort of aspires to and what he fancies himself as is not a perfect weapon but the ultimate warrior <laughs> it's like, dude come on like the like it, anyone over the age of 11 is immediately going to picture the dude with the crazy makeup and the tassels coming from his biceps
0: like Ultimate warrior? Also, it's a total Seagal move for, like, in a movie about the perfect weapon that he's not the main character of or, like, the eponymous character. He would still try to upstage everything right. by calling himself the ultimate warrior. Yeah.
1: And then, like, on the subject of, of, of Seagal, like, not being the main guy, like, he was an executive producer on the film. So obviously, uh, he always has a lot of influence in everything he does, even in the absence of writing credits or producing credits. But, like, in this film, it's, like, every second he's on screen... It's just like the only information you're getting is how awesome this guy is. And it's just like the, the the greatest assassin ever tries to kill him and we see a flashback of him beating this guy up and then you see uh, a young Sagal face Photoshopped onto yes. him. Oh yeah. That which which again like like I was saying before like surprisingly well done. Like it looked pretty good because it, oh, yeah. it was
0: hidden like 75% in shadow.
1: Yeah. But I mean that, see that's a brilliant like that's a that's a brilliant uh vfx decision you know like if you don't have the budget to like do the you know the way that in like uh the x-men film they had to like age patrick stewart's face and that like every single frame was like painted on or whatever and it's like insane you know yeah it's it's like an entire city in india is working on that for like a month uh <laughs> and i mean with this it's like it's obviously one dork doing all the vfx yeah so i mean like this is a smart decision but um yeah, just like every everything is on screen. He he's he's doing his Aikido stuff, he's doing a flashback to show he's such a badass. Uh of course, uh, as in, in any Seagal film, he speaks some Japanese. His Japanese sounds pretty good. I don't speak Japanese, but like in contrast to him speaking other languages, so, <laughs> I mean it sounded pretty legit. I mean
0: I we just recently watched Belly of the Beast, which has him mangle tie a bit. Yeah. So it's a, it's a step up. Mm-hmm. But anyways Like, fairly early into this movie, our lead dude, the perfect weapon, Condor, he's convinced to turn away from mindlessly killing people from the state. And he ends up in this great brawl in a bathroom. And I'm reminded of the opening scene of the rebooted James Bond Casino Royale, which starts off with this really brutal fight in a bathroom. And like, I don't know, something about like a fight in like a really sometimes literally shitty place can be really appealing. It's like, Oh yeah, this is lo-fi. This is realistic. This scene, like this movie turns this bathroom fight into a comedy of errors in which people keep walking into the bathroom during this, during Condor's attempt to be stealthy. Like it's the opening scene of American pie Two, where like the parents
2: walk in on Jason Biggs having sex with his girlfriend. I mean, if you put the Benny Hill theme song underneath this and (laughs) sped it up just like 1.3 times, it would be like it would be perfect. And put some Vangelis synths under it. (laughs) I mean, you know, six of one, half a dozen of another. It was still perfect. But this it, 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 it first sort of introduces us to the way that this film is going to go, which is basically Condor is going to do something and then the ramifications of what he's just done will be completely nullified by something that ends the scene and then pulls you to the next part because there there's not great writing put into this. It's just sort of like this guy punches people and then someone else who he doesn't know or who he knows from his past says, okay, you did that. Now come here or you do this
0: or something. So having spent a lot of my time on TV tropes lately, apologies for that. There is a term for that. It's called a pinball protagonist. They're just
2: bounced around from one key plot point to another. And that's exactly what this is. The perfect weapon has, and maybe it's actually speaking more to Steven Seagal's opening monologue of just the perfect weapon is unreliable. Like this guy doesn't get anything done himself. He's always sort of at the behest of other people. It's not you follow this guy because he's following other people. And that's just the way the narrative is breaking down. What is a perfect weapon, but a tool to be used by others? And another tool that's to be used by others is Alexa, the the Amazon ordering app that we put into our homes, but in the future has been taken over by the Illuminati. Once Condor gets home and he's realized that Alexa is probably listening to him because this is the year 2029 and everything is just shaded in blackness and death. He shoots it as he reconnects with his girlfriend in the second of a few Really well paced shower scenes, and mm. Michael. There, one, there are three in this movie. I think. No, At shower scenes? There's, there's,
1: there's two. There's the, there's two. a, there's a solo one, and then there's the, a uh, uh, room for one more one, and then the, yeah, the, 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 the photography of the shower scene stark contrast to the rest of the film, where it has a sort of like low contrast uh the arty kind of uh vimeo kind of look uh which is so different from the rest of the movie where it's just like like super contrasty like garishly lit like like what did we talked about this a number of times but like this like 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 low rent 90s soft you know yes and it's like like in terms of the aesthetic like that's the simplest way to like it doesn't look like science fiction film especially by 2017 Sanders, like it looks like almost like a self-conscious throwback to like like flesh gordon or something
0: flesh gordon is my favorite porn or something i might have stumbled across on showcase in the middle of the night yeah in, yeah. 19, in 2001
1: flesh gordon the dram the Drambuie showcase review that that's actually not a lot of my alcohol choices were inspired by soft corn pornography but i will say that's the reason why i <laughs> bought my first bottle of dram I was like, this alcohol must be sexy.
2: <laughs> Wasn't was. Really. Oh.
1: It's really only sexy if you're like a 280 pound, uh, 66 year old uh, Austrian man. And you just, like, oh, one more. Place. So, our main demographic. Imagine.
3: You just got a lot of Austrian men laid tonight. <laughs> yeah. So,
2: our protagonist, Condor Axiom. Axum? Axon. Axon or something. Axon. <laughs> Axon, like Exon part Noble. of the brain cell. As soon as he starts making love to his ex girlfriend that he shot in the titty and then maybe didn't shoot in the titty, but definitely shot in the titty and now is trying to uh, get back with her, even though he shot her in the titty. Two of them are arrested naked uh, because this is the state after <laughs> Axum slash Condor opens up uh, his fridge and gets a beer brand beer next to his egg brand pickled eggs. A beautiful sort of communist uh, little manifesto but there. What's really funny, he
0: turns on the TV and he sees like not so much an advertisement, just as like paid shilling for State Farm Insurance, yeah, specifically State Farm. Like
1: that was it's not bizarre. called
2: insurance company or anything. It's like they we, must have some sort of headquarters in Alabama. It's just like it's this like, movie's we, coming up. This we need to get our yeah.
1: Funding e- every somewhere. every film shot in Alabama. They have to represent their local brand. Mm-hmm. Be like, all right, you can shoot down here in Alabama, but you better
2: include State Farm Plug. <laughs> and so he is uh, captured by a whole bunch of uh, SWAT team agents, and he wakes up in the condor's position, which is full plumage out uh, because he's been strapped to the ceiling.
3: Right after he gets interrupted during the sex by that same TV.
2: Yes. So the same TV... So as soon as he starts having sex with somebody, and this is a, another weird thing about this film, is everything is lit from underneath. Right. Like, it's, there was no actual lighting on set. It was all just the LED strips. Yes, LED light strips. And so he gets caught making love by the state, even though they could probably sense through one of the bottles that he had had too much to drink. And so they said, that man is intoxicated. Let's take him downtown for questioning. And who is there to question him naked is strapped to the ceiling, but the world's largest leprechaun, uh, a 70-year-old man who is convinced to dye not only his uh, like Jersey Shore-style beard that just cuts off the start of his second chin-slash-super-jowl, I think is what you call it, but also he was convinced to dye his eyebrows and his eyebrows black and his soul patch red. It's a very, very, very disconcerting image, and it makes it all the more convincing when this man pulls out one of Condor's toenails. He's played by Vernon Wells, who
0: some people might know as Wes, uh, one of the lead ruffians in Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, and he's like the main villain in Commando. (laughs) What? Listen, I have an eye for obscure 80s character actors.
1: I mean, it's, it's funny... Uh, thinking about the Mad Max role, because he also has garish hair, you know. Yeah, mm. Which I think is like a double mohawk or maybe a single mohawk, and I feel like there's red in there, so maybe it was like a little homage to uh, also L. Gibson's best works in the much Christ.
0: like Vernon Wells's costume in Road Warrior. This scene is very
3: BDSM vibes. Mm.
2: True, very BDSM vibes. There's-
3: just pulls out the razor blade at one point. Oh, and just like... takes his pants down.
2: Yeah,
0: Condor's pants down. He is about to uh, deal with his John Thomas there.
1: (laughs) That scene when... And yet he he,
2: escapes with his Sarah Connor.
1: Yeah, that scene when Uh, he tests the sharpness of the razor blade by cutting his own tongue.
3: Yeah, that was... Funny
1: funny anecdote about that. Hey, do you remember that scene in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula... Where uh, Dracula is watching uh, Keanu Reeves shave and Keanu Reeves cuts himself. Yeah. And so he takes the razor and does that like he licks it on his tongue. And so I tried to emulate that once with a knife
0: and
3: I
1: cut my tongue. (laughs) And so I do it. And then My girlfriend's just like, you idiot. Like, what are you doing? And so I do that. And I was like, oh, shit, I think I cut my tongue. And I looked at my tongue. There's a big cut across it because it was like a razor sharp knife.
0: Why were you licking the knife in the first place? Just because I was really inspired by that scene, (laughs) I mean... It was a bad idea. It it was a bad idea. Love never dies. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, bad things would have happened to Condor's, you know, little buddy down there, were not for the fact that his former supervisor, who he kind of presumably portrayed earlier on in the movie, comes back, rescues him, blows a hole through giant leprechaun's face. He brings him and Condor's girlfriend to La Resistance.
1: The 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 way that scene plays out is so funny because like he guns down everyone in the room and then Condor is like, Where's Nina? And like, uh, like, like three quarters of a second at most after he says Where's Nina? you hear Ah and It's just like this bitch has been quiet the whole fucking time after all the shooting and everything, and only when you uh are in need of her like uh uh location, all of a sudden she's like ah! And then she's beating everyone up on her own. Yeah. And it, it's, it's kind of going back to Riley, what you said about like how unbadass the Condor character is. Cause he needed his supervisor to come save him. But then his girlfriend has just been beating the shit out of everybody.
0: When he's, they're brought to like the Resistance headquarters. Uh, so his former supervisor, dude, has actually been deep undercover. He's been working with the Resistance this whole time. And they formulate a plan. To break into, you know, El Presidente Segal's skyscraper headquarters to kill him and bring an end to his tyrannical reign, they plan this out using like the same kind of hologram they use for the Death Star in original Star Wars, <laughs> or at least Return of the Jedi. Except it's a skyscraper that any one of them can see by looking out the window, and yes. doesn't even show. The, it doesn't even show the interior schematics for how to break in. It's just. Here's this constantly revolving skyscraper hologram. Yeah, you can't keep your eye on anything because it's constantly revolving on an axis.
2: I mean, I think this is one of the things that, Michael, you pointed out while we were watching the film, which is like the thing that makes uh, Philip K. Dick's science fiction so compelling is he didn't really deal with sort of what's technology going to be like in 20 years. It's just sort of more like how are humans going to treat each other the way that humans treat each other now, just Mm. with access to more technology And that is exactly sort of the opposite of what this film is doing, which is this film is just like, oh, you know, Star Wars had like this weird hologram thing. What if we did that, but with like in color and with more lines? And it's just like, it's not at all in 2029. No one's going to be doing these holograms up into this thing or watching at the beginning of the film. There's two guys who are never named, but they watch in rapture of a. Bank transfer go through a loading like a bar. loading screen yeah. for a bank transfer like yeah. it's not that's not the way the future is going to work. But they don't even have like a proper
0: computer model for that. They have a giant fake diamond that this readout <laughs> is projected onto or projected on from within or whatever.
1: Yeah, like the, there's nothing less like futuristicy or otherworldly than modern day technology just like repackaged under the guise of it being like more futuristicy but doing the exact same thing and it's kind of like like that's one thing that i really don't like about uh like like fantasy um movies that it's like like it's really just like 20th century uh values and culture but with swords and magic and dragons you know like it's not like oh like we're going to explore what society would have been like before technology or before uh, the Renaissance or whatever, whatever. It's just like, it's all the same. There's husbands and wives and there's kids and there's villages. It's exactly the same thing. There's just no cable and there's dragons. Mm-hmm. And I find like, it's the same thing with this film. Where it's and like, every
2: enemy is the Nazis because yeah. it has to be a big baddie. Obviously, it can't be any shades yeah, like, of gray.
0: Yeah. yeah, like good sci-fi tries to explore the, sci- the, fi- the fictional society with which it creates. But despite these themes of like totalitarianism and resistance and revolution it feels really disconnected from the society. Like the society is portrayed as like super decadent. And it's like the people don't aren't depicted as being worth saving in this. It feels very detached from the people at large.
1: Whoa. That's a really good point. I I, I gotta admit, I never really even thought of that, that like um, we have no idea like what like the average people are doing. Cause the only people that we're really ever exposed to that aren't, Either these shady government, uh, NSA, CIA dudes, or like the bourgeoisie having a tea party. Like the the only time we see regular people is in the the crazy industrial metal strip club. And aside from that, there's no other real regular people in it.
0: And the people in the club look like they're living their best lives.
1: Yeah. Or also that they're just like you know crazy,
2: sexually promiscuous drug users living their best lives. Yeah. But let's continue on with the plot because these people obviously aren't living their best lives; otherwise, the dictator would have made that their best life. So after he sleeps with his girlfriend in like a proto terrorist bunker slash just like underground loft,
0: yeah, yeah. next to all this camouflage <laughs> weapon,
2: yeah, it's the things that you put over like a plane in the jungle, or the like stuff it's like- the thing that actually denotes that it's not a porn scene because it is not a good enough place for it. Like, porn actors would not come in to fuck in this place because it doesn't look nice enough.
1: I feel like in the 90s they would, though. Because that, that was kind of like, that's like a shit. <laughs> this
2: is 2029, Michael. Yeah, but... Hey, that, you know, culture yeah. comes back around Kurt man. Cobain is dead. He came back as a hologram, but then Tupac shot him.
1: But yeah, no, they're like the, the lackluster or maybe sort of like commonplace backdrops for the copulating. That was like a popular theme in like 90s porn where people would be like
0: fucking in like a bakery's kitchen. All I could do is afford to like film in warehouses. So they just worked with that. But anyways, after that little bit of tender loving, we move on to the third act in which Condor infiltrates the skyscraper with President Seagal. Um, <laughs> who is
2: he doesn't do it with President Seagal? The no, skyscraper has President Seagal yeah. in it.
0: No, President Seagal is way too busy like giving a sensuous massage to a possibly
2: dead woman. And hey, America, get real used to the term President Seagal. <gasps> Imagine born in Michigan, it's happening. Come on, Kid Rock, Secretary of State.
0: Please stop describing hell. So Condor is not alone in infiltrating this skyscraper. He's accompanied by this guy named Cronus, who was part of this... (laughs) No, I looked it up. I know, but I'm just confused by the name. because, like, Cronus? Like, Cronus? One of the original Greek god Titans? Cronus does read better than a token black character. Yes, which he is. And much like a token black character in a horror movie, he's swiftly killed off as soon as they entered the skyscraper. Cronus was part of this team of, like, kendo stick practitioners who earlier on the movie were witness to the live stream of Condor being tortured. Like as the scene (laughs) happened, it was very confusing because even though this horrible torture scene is ostensibly being broadcast out to the entire public, we only see this stream from the perspective of these, these guys screwing around with kendo sticks in a gym of which Cronus is one of them.
2: Weirdly, this Film gets a lot of things right about the future, which is one of those things is there's going to be a lot more live streaming of a lot weirder shit. Yeah. And you're going to be watching it a lot different in weirder places. And like that torture scene where people like, are they training? Are they a club? Are they whatever, whatever they're doing? They're just. I think the implication is that there would be perfect
0: weapons following in Condor's footsteps now that he's gone rogue. Like, save for the unfortunate loss of Cronus, Condor's like, ascent up the tower is pretty unimpeded for the remainder of it, yeah. which is shocking because <laughs> right, this is like the president skyscraper in a totalitarian government. This should be locked down with like 50 SWAT teams. But there is a throwaway line of dialogue earlier on in the movie where like the supervisor turned secret mole dude turned supervisor. It says like the presidents made a law of enemies. So it's this totalitarian government where like most of the people in the government hate the guy in charge and yet he's still in charge that, you know, this, they probably been waiting for this moment for like this knockoff agent 47 to take him down. He's able to break into the president's penthouse and they fight. And like one of the quirks of Steven Seagal movies. And one of the things which prevent his characters from being fully realized is that he does not want any character he plays to be anything less than superhuman and unstoppable. It's an ego thing with him.
2: Well, he doesn't want a misrepresentation of himself on screen.
0: He wants the film to be factually accurate. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in the role of the protagonist that doesn't work so well. You want your protagonist to be, be flawed and get like it's his ass handed to him from time to time, much like Condor does frequently in this movie. It actually works if you're positioning this unstoppable, unbeatable character as the main villain. So it's the one case this works out.
2: It really does, as like a dictator, as like someone who is projecting his power the same way that someone who is running uh, North Korea would. It's just like sort of, I'm all powerful because I know this god given talent that actually in real life doesn't really do anything because it's just aikido. But when I present it the way that I presented, it it is amazing. It's a really, really good representation of Steven Seagal on film. Finally,
1: Riley, I I remember in a a previous episode. you mentioned this idea about like uh, Sagal as he'd be better suited to play a villain later in his career. And like, I mean, I think this film is a perfect example of like, it just works so much better than uh, like contract to kill, for example, or like <laughs> cartels. It's just like, this is like, and it like, like again, he he's in this film very little, mm-hmm. but it's just like, I feel like he's just like, he was loving being the bad guy and delivering all these like corny sinister one-liners and like i think he likes it so much more than like like as as much as we would like to believe that he wants to be the good guy and he wants to uh, be spewing all these silly political diatribes and stuff like that that like i think that like like the 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 joy that he has in delivering in this role is like like you know Back when he was like, you know, young, handsome guy and he was kicking ass and he kind of be like a tough guy and like cool. That made sense. But I feel like at this point in his career, like like he's like he has to be, a
2: villain, you know. Well, this is one of the few roles. This is the first time that we've seen Steven Seagal in a role that he filmed in probably less than a day.
1: Probably all in one room also.
2: Yeah, and oh, yeah. I don't think we ever see him outside of this room, which again is just a soundstage, sort of furnished with IKEA catalog. I'd say we see him more often on the video screens
0: around the city. Yeah, there's (laughs) a really good
2: picture of him that they used that probably got more screen time than he did. But he's not worn out from production. Like he, he brings like a level of like the a playfulness that he brings to this role of just sort of like. He, he keeps saying like, oh, you know, this is what I do when I pull your hand up. You go down because this, you're bowing down because I'm manipulating you or I'm manipulating a part of you, but all of you is bowing down to me. Like that is a, it's a very convoluted sort of metaphor. But it, 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 the way that he does it is with sort of a gusto that we don't yeah. see with Steven Seagal very often. And I think all of that is just because, again, one day of filming, and he probably saw that it was close to lunch. And if you could get through this in one breath, God damn! that egg salad sandwich was all his. It's in this moment
0: during this fight in which he turns on a view screen and shows Condor the real truth that his old supervisor and his girlfriend Nina had been plotting against him the whole time. It almost kind of reminds me of the twist and turn at the end of 1984 in which the ostensibly helpful O'Brien is revealed as not like a mole within the government but actually like working for the government and trying to root out dissidents. So this movie is very 1984. If they kind of misunderstand the ending of 1984, which we'll get to very shortly because Condor decides in this moment that he does not want to be anyone's tool anymore. He wants to act for himself. So he really fucks up, uh, president Seagal and he makes his way out of the penthouse where he's now finally surrounded by the SWAT team who should have been guarding the president
2: in the first place. But this SWAT team is not a regular SWAT team because they have all been christened with red berets. Yeah, it's just... And, and roller and red,
1: rollerblading gear.
2: And red uh, armbands, which, thank God, it didn't have a, any sort of signifier on it because nowadays that would have been... It's surprising how well this film plays in 2017, even mm. though it was just filmed in 2016. Let's just put it that way.
0: Yeah, like the government that feels like cheap and like found in the back aisle of a dollar store. That sounds about right. condor. It looks like he's beat. looks like he's cornered. You know, he's like, fuck it. I'm going to go out in style, takes off his jacket, pulls out a katana. But what's that? It's the kendo class from earlier. Except now this time they have actual katanas and they fuck up the SWAT team. So this, I noted at the time in the commentary, this is the first time I've ever seen an instance of like, chekhov's kendo class like the same thing that seemed totally inexplicable at the time
2: but man did it come around in the best way i mean think about the last the last scene in the last samurai but just in reverse (laughs) where all the (laughs) samurais are coming alive and they're cutting down men with guns because that is essentially what happens in this scene that is so implausible And I mean, it brings up a further thing, which is just like every scene in this film kind of wants to be a scene from the Matrix, but it's cheaper. And so this one is sort of the bank plaza one from the end of the first first film. But in this one, it's like actually a Romanian bank. I think you pointed out, Michael, where it's just like, I'm about to say Albania. No, it's in Alabama. (laughs) Well, that 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 first
1: national y'all The the Matrix reference like. There definitely are a number of uh, scenes, or sort of like uh, attempts at scenes, the aping the Matrix. So we've got the the nightclub scene, uh, which was incredibly similar, both in terms of like uh, the the general vibe, or even the the place in the film that um, uh, occurs to the uh, fall of the white rabbit scene in the Matrix, and then there's a gun battle where um, she starts doing like a tumbling routine <laughs> to dodge bullets. <laughs> and the, the, the funny thing is that like, you know, like in the matrix, like that tumbling thing, it's like, it's a pragmatic solution because the gun is on the ground. And so she's running, dodging inter- enemy fire, to pick up the gun. And she's behind a bunch of pillars. Uh, like the, the rolling isn't keeping her safe from the bullets. It's that to pick up the gun, the fastest thing to do would be to jump on it and do it. But in this, it's like, like, there are eight guys with automatic weapons shooting a, a hail of bullets at her, and she's literally tumbling in a perfectly linear line just, like, right at them, and well, nothing is hitting
0: her. Well, like, what's she going to hide behind? The cardboard boxes in the <laughs> warehouse? Yeah. I mean, it was
1: perfectly suitable. It must be filled with Kevlar vests, <laughs> based on the fact that all, all these guys are funny. Firing automatic weapons into them is like
2: the terrorists are in the Kevlar factory. There's no way we're going to bring them yeah. down. <laughs> but um the other thing that is great about that scene is that there is one part of it that I feel like was part of a grander version of that scene that they cut down in this where there's just one scene where she's there's one cut where she is doing her sort of tumble around and then our protagonist, Condor, there's just a cut to him going, like he's rolling his eyes and telling her to get ah. back in. But then it goes back into about 30 seconds of her doing more tumbles. Ah. So it's clear that she's not close to the car at all. She's not trying to escape or anything like that. She's still in the midst of that. So it's just like sort of like this little snippet of something that should have been edited out but wasn't. But um, anyways, Condor takes down... The dictator escapes, which this was is, like it was a very
3: anti-climactic death too. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so Seagal gets, I guess, what we're supposed to assume is stabbed in the heart yeah. with the, with the tiniest like bread knife you've <laughs> ever seen. <laughs> right? The blade was about like two and a half inches long max. Uh, and then Seagal like sits down. Uh, what well, we're supposed to be is him dying. Yeah. But, like he kind of looks too like, tired for this. Yeah. <laughs> he, he he doesn't really so much look like. Uh, like he's he's bleeding out and dying. He kind of more looks like he just had like two double downs, and he's loosening his belt and he's like, Ugh. <laughs> like it, it's like the least pained or the least I'm scared of bleeding to death all by myself. Faces ever.
0: Yeah. Like they go to this old church where the video of uh, like Nina, the girlfriend, and the supervisor slash mole slash really a supervisor dude. Or, like, having their big truth talk. What the fuck am I saying? Like, their plot twist talk about how they were actually on the side of the government the whole time. And I think Condor quickly plugs that guy. Do I don't recall correctly. No, she shoots him. Oh, she shoots him, yeah. yes. With her t- tiny lady gun. And then there's, like, a bit of debate about whether Condor is going to go through with this. But no, he makes his choice. He's... He's his own man, no longer the other people's perfect weapon, and he shoots her in the neck.
1: Although he's kind of driven to act because she is about to shoot him, like she raises a gun up to him, and he's like, "Oh well, I'm gonna kill you, bitch." Yeah,
0: he didn't Uh, need to go to that place though. He could have just walked away, but no, he created that situation. That's him taking charge. (laughs) I, I'm trying to assign him any bit of agency he can because. Boy, this he doesn't have much. Yeah, he
2: doesn't have much at all. And yet, this film has the audacity, has the balls to say, you thought you were done in this universe? No, sir. You will come back again and again. Because what we have served up is the best piece of futuristic spy versus spy you've seen in a while. Because, I mean, does anybody want to take it away? Stephen, we cut back after that scene to Steven Seagal sitting down in his chair. Yeah, still sitting slowly down. Like, dying. Yeah, oof. Oh. I need <laughs> <my> <laughs> heavily breathing. <laughs> like, and this is the other thing that's great about this film, is that it's not great about this film. It's not great that this is the state of filmmaking at all. But uh it's interesting that Steven Seagal at some point had access to the script and searched for any uh adjectives that his character was doing and search and replaced them with sitting. Um, because that's all he does for this entire film, except for maybe like forty-five seconds of him swinging a sword over his head, and even that I suspect was sped up in post to make it look more impressive.
1: Yeah, I, I, I gotta assume that in the original script there was at least one or two scenes that involve his character walking upstairs, <laughs> and he's just like, nope. <laughs> and it's like we're gonna replace that with sitting or perhaps uh massaging. In n- nubile Japanese teen. I think that, that's gonna work a lot better than this whole stairs rigmarole.
2: Like, I'm not a director, but maybe if her asshole was like out of focus, but sort of in the <laughs> foreground of this scene, I, and I was like petting it suggestive. I'm, again, I'm not a director, but that might be something that people are looking for. And make sure it's out of focus. <laughs>
0: Because this movie is about asking big questions <laughs> and one of the questions the audience should be asking themselves is was that an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> it's,
3: but-
0: it's the ambiguity that keeps them awake at night.
1: There, there was a lot of conversation during our live commentary about uh, exactly what that m- misshapen brown <laughs> thing that was kind of uh, not
3: very clean. Yeah,
1: it you compared
0: yeah. it to the corpse of Mahalandra.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that doesn't matter because the man who was petting that dirty asshole is dead, or so we thought. Because, because another Steven
0: Seagal walks on screen,
2: and like, and in the greatest scene in the history of all cinema, it was probably
1: the most excited I've been in a Seagal film.
0: Yeah, I was pretty pumped in the sense that I was feeling like kind of tired and drifting at the end. But then another Seagull walked on screen and completely blew away my expectations
2: of what this movie had been. So the dictator is lying, dying in his chair. Steven Seagal is lying, dying in his chair. And all of a sudden, this mysterious figure walks over from the side of this from stage right. And who is it? But it is Steven Seagal.
1: And he has an identical twin.
2: He has an identical twin, but obviously not an actual identical twin because whoever they got to sit in for Steven Seagal did not do a very good job just in they couldn't find the exact same brand of horsehair that Steven Seagal uses for his head. But it turns out that this the dictator wasn't actually the dictator. It was the dictator's twin. Amazing twist. I agree. No no signposting put up to this one whatsoever.
3: Kind of still Star Wars. Kind of still Star Wars.
2: So it, they've obviously, whoever the director was, what was his name again? Oh, Titus Parr. Yeah, Titus P-A-A-R. Parr, had the audacity to just be like, this is going to be my Star Wars. This is going to be at least three films, probably some spinoffs in between. He has the audacity to be like, this bad guy isn't dead. He's coming back badder than ever. And I'm hoping with more Photoshopped young pictures of him Whoa. in the past. Because this is just so, it's so bad, but it's so good. It's such a perfect ending to this movie. Imagine if it was just like a Seagal dictator origin story. And <laughs> Titus Parr, he's really looking forward to the
0: day in which a combo pack of his Perfect Weapon trilogy can be found on the shelves. Of
2: any quickie convenience store. <laughs> wow, in an HD DVD. I never would have thought.
3: <laughs> Fuck me, I'm tired. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, we've been at this. This is our third hour of Steven Seagal. Doctors don't recommend more than an hour. <laughs> if it lasts more than four, uh, contact a martial arts specialist. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so we should we wrap it up with our final thoughts?
2: Should we talk about our final thoughts on this film?
0: I'm kind of disappointed that didn't, that all the parts that could have turned into a porn it didn't if I can actually speak more honestly and more seriously. it's funny watching like I was not expecting this to be a vague adaptation of 1984, or at least it's using the general idea of government spying on everything.
2: But it's not even like 1984. It's using like the Apple computer ad from 1984 <laughs> version of 1984. <laughs> you know, really Scott's finest work. <laughs>
0: Uh but then like totally like screwing up the ending.
1: Kind of like saying a band sounds like Metallica, but it's like post load Metallica or post Saint Anger. Not a lot of Metallica fans here. Onward. All I know about death. Metallica fans <laughs> is
0: that they hate, hate most Metallica.
1: Uh so what, what uh out of out of five, Dan, what are you what are you gonna give it?
0: I'm gonna That's give five. it a I'm gonna give it a two. It's like, you no know, yeah two out of five because the two stars, like the points I'm going to give it are because miscongeniality. <laughs> no, it's the fact that Seagal was obviously having a lot of fun with the bare minimum of scenes he did. Like he was just kind of eating up this role of this sleazy totalitarian leader that even his own diehard supporters kind of hated. It's like, hey, so oddly, you know, relevant to
2: today's uh, political atmosphere. Yeah, and we're trying to make sure these podcasts last forever. (laughs) Yes. The things we say here are timeless, and you're as timeless as Steven Seagal. You're trying to say that something that you would say here is only good for eight years?
0: What? Don't don't say eight. (laughs) Please don't say eight. Uh, Like, yeah, I'm willing to give it the points because, like, for the few, the minimum number of scenes Seagal was in it, he was having some good fun there. And it was also nice to see a cameo by Vernon Wells, like out of nowhere, as giant Leprechaun man. But otherwise, the person the movie actually focused on was kind of the most boring person in the movie, much like uh, in your The Revenant.
2: <laughs> it's true, Tony. What do you think?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, you you had a good comment during the commentary where you said it's kind of like if. Google AI just made a movie and it really is like, just like a piecemeal, like trope after trope thrown together with no real glue holding it all together. Mm -hmm. And we watched it for Steven Seagal and he didn't really get to add much to the movie. Like he he didn't really like he didn't star in it. Unfortunately, if he was the perfect weapon, it would have gone way up
0: oh god what if he had been the perfect weapon main character and it turns out the leader was him as well and it could still work with the brother thing and the ending is just two Seagulls like, uh,
2: yeah, what could have then been... at the end it's revealed that this movie was actually called Triplets and it's the sequel to Twins <laughs>
1: for a much better movie out, out
2: of five what would you give it Tony
3: uh, I mean
2: keep discussing it tell us more oh, yeah, sorry, about yeah. your feelings about it
3: yeah I know I mean that, that pretty much sums it up like he just doesn't it it it's just like the scraping the bottom of the barrel of action movies, throwing it together and then kind of slapping the Steven Seagal bits that he does. Those are the only parts that make it good. If you watch it as a comedy, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> but if you watch it as an action movie, it's awful. Uh, there were a couple pretty funny effects, like the electrocution. And oh, yes, the head that like, gets kind of blown off. Yeah. Oh, and so those kind of add a couple points for me because they're just like, you know, he's just throwing whatever he can at it to make some people, yeah, like come when they're watching it. <laughs> like, and so I, I'd say four out of ten. Okay, four out of ten
2: instead of the two out of five that Dan gave. This well, is a very that's big equivalent range to of, that's equivalent to two out of five.
3: I thought you said two out of ten. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: oh, sorry. I thought we were
0: doing it on a five skill. I said two out of five. But,
1: uh, oh, okay. but well, then, four
3: out of ten like is the same. So yep. Yeah. Well, no, I'm mean, going to have to give it more than two out of five, even though I gave it two out of five. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm sticking with two out of five then.
2: This is tough for me because I've watched so much Steven Seagal. Actually, it's not that tough because Belly of the Beast. Belly of the Beast was sort of my high watermark of bad Steven Seagal. And this did not come close to that. But it was also the best of late period Seagal that we've seen. Totally agree. Because it, it is like, there are so many hallmarks in this film of just bad filmmaking. But not enough that you'd be able to sort of patiently watch through and be like, oh, this is such a bad movie, sort of bad movie. Like There, there are a lot of good signposts for Steven Seagal fanatics, of which I believe Michael and I are the only two in the world. <laughs> uh, even Dylan abandoned us. But, uh, yeah, no, there's a lot of ambition. Yeah. A lot of ambition, which is admirable, but it does not deliver on whatsoever. It's it's interesting to see where $8 million went, and a lot of that was just in, like, floor lighting, it seems like. Eh, just, like, lighting people from the bottom of the set. Yeah. I I would say, on the whole, again, two out of five. Seems pretty good. If you like, in terms of watchability, watch it before anything else except for uh, Belly of the Beast that we've reviewed. Michael, over to you for final thoughts.
1: One thing that I I I guess kind of really surprised me about this film is how like maybe a bad way of putting it, but (laughs) I guess like how painless a viewing experience it was when you consider that like aside from the brief moments where Sagal's on screen and you know, he's like like really lively and like there's a sort of like uh vigor to him that we haven't seen in a while. Aside from those, it's like all of the other characters are just so painfully uninteresting mm-hmm. that it's just like 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 they're working with s- so little really engaging good shit. But somehow, like, they're just able to milk all these little things to work well, you know? Yeah. And that, like, like again, they don't have a huge money, for, a huge budget uh, for uh, VFX, but, like, it looks pretty good, you know? Like, all the screens and the buildings look good. There's a few scenes where, like, uh, he's in an alleyway and there's, like, a set extension kind of thing where there's, like, uh, like a matte painting thing of the futuristic uh, city. And, I mean, it looks great. And then, like, the head exploding scene, it looked great, too. And... Like our, you know, the protagonist is like, you know, like he he has the charisma of a doorstop, you know, Like he's just like, like, you're so not looking at him in in awe. I can't,
0: I can't even get a read on the guy. Like my summary of that actor is he is a person who exists.
1: Yeah. Like he's just like, like, like. You know, yeah, he's shooting some people, but, you know, as we kind of referenced a few times that like, he's just constantly fucking up and like constantly failing. And
0: then which is like actually the are the appeal of Harrison Ford's character Deckard in Blade Runner. Like he is not like a badass Han Solo or Indiana Jones. He spends most of that movie getting his ass handed to him, Sure, but he is not supposed to be like the perfect weapon. However, this guy is supposed to be an unstoppable badass. Yeah.
1: yeah, like the, the, uh, the like as as Riley said, like in terms of like late period Segal, like like this is the champ by far. Like uh, like the 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 only other sort of like shining light I would say in like a later period stuff mm-hmm. we we'll watch would be like what is the guy's name Dominic Gross in Cartels, the bald guy who is kind of like the protagonist.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. Like I mean, like that guy. He, it's it's the exact opposite of this film, where it's like the rest of the film is just like garbage, but, like, he's, like, a really strong male lead. But in this one, it's kind of like, like, yeah, they just everything, everything is at like, a four. But, like, there's this, this, like, gestalt of uh, all those uh, mediocre elements somehow coalescing into something that's actually kind of good. So, uh, I would say in terms of, like, rating, like, I would give it a 3.5.
2: Oh wow. God
0: okay. yeah. Goddamn. That would be a decent movie in Roger Ebert's books. Yeah. So second highest
1: Where did you for... rate
2: Belly of the Beast? Do you remember?
1: I wasn't really crazy about Belly Beast. I I would rate this higher than Belly of the Beast. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay, so we all had different opinions on this. Does anybody have any idea what we should watch next time? I'd say Out for Justice, aka Where Detective
0: Gino Fellino beats the shit out of some guys in a bar with a pool ball.
2: Interesting. Tell us more. I've literally only watched that specific scene <laughs> All
3: right. That's good though. That's good. Yeah. It's better to go in blind.
2: <laughs> Is that a line from the movie? Because now so. I'm interested. He
3: pokes it. No, in going, the blind the going blind was the Rutger Harrow movie. And guys, it's better to go in blind. Yeah.